Welcome to Vibrant Visionaries with Heidi Bennett. I'm bringing on a longtime friend who, well, we've just really reconnected recently. I want to welcome him on and then we're just going to kind of let things bubble up and flow as they go. So welcome, Brian. This is Brian Darling. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm so stoked to talk with you. We we caught up about, I don't know, a month ago or so. Yeah. And I was telling my husband how much I enjoyed our conversation. I said, you know, Brian was on the move and I think he went to a taco truck and got lunch and maybe went and got some coffee and, you know, did some banking. And <laughs> I felt like I was just <laughs> right along with him, you know, and you say you want to reconnect with your friends. I don't think there's any way better to do it than to literally like jump right in there and and uh, be on the phone with them while they're going through their daily routine. <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I it's not uncommon. My friends and I do that all the time. You know, we're always I feel like especially in LA, you know, you're always on on the go, you're always doing something. So it's very common that we when we talk to each other on the phone, we're driving oftentimes or right doing something. You're multitasking. Yeah, totally. I, I do that a lot myself too. In fact, I was thinking about how there's these images out there. I guess they call them flat lay images where you'll see like an image of a an iPhone with headphone, you know, sticking out of it, like that your your um headphones, they're usually those little tiny ones that I don't ever use that come with your iPhone if if that's what you have. And then it's sitting next to like somebody's little mug of coffee or something. And that's supposed to like represent, I don't know, somebody who listens to podcasts. And I think uh. <laughs> I've never, ever, ever listened to podcasts that way. And I was thinking about that the other day because I was running around and um doing things that I actually don't put small earphones into my ears because it, it hurts my ears. So yeah. I either yeah. wear really huge earphones or obviously I listen to podcasts in my in my car and stuff. But when I'm just around the house, I'll just carry my phone around with me and, you know, go to use the restroom. I take that phone and throw it on the top of my laundry basket. And I was thinking, now that's the snapshot, you know, like wherever you're out there listening to this podcast, maybe you're in the bathroom on a toilet and your phone is on top of your laundry like that totally that's not the cute little you know image that is put out there no absolutely <laughs> we're off to such a good start here <laughs> so yeah um just to give people a little little tiny bit of background um you and i know each other from when we both lived in Sacramento, California. And uh, yeah, it was quite a few years ago. Time flies, but it was at a pivotal and adventurous time in my life. I won't go into too many details, but I was single and in my 30s and having a lot of adventures and working at a coffee house. One that uh, if you have seen Lady Bird, it is the one that she says she works at. She gets a job at New Helvetia and I was the manager there. And I think we met through New Helvetia. Is that what we you, did. How you remember? Yeah, yeah, we did. No, we did. Because I used to do the movie nights there, or at least I started doing movie nights in the backyard on a 16 millimeter projector. And I remember I needed a place to live right. and we talked about it. And you're like, you need to check out my apartment building. And then we became next door neighbors. You know, what's funny is I would look back then, I was thinking about rent, the, one of the most favorite sort of topics to, to talk about and complain about all at once. And sure, 
I think our I think my rent back then was four hundred and twenty five dollars a month or four fifty something like that between four and four fifty for a two bedroom apartment. And I remember that being a lot of money, feeling like a lot of money. Right. And I had a roommate, right? And being so worried about being able to pay rent. You know, when you were starting to talk about that, I was thinking I the the number four is definitely coming up in my mind. And and I was living and mine was a one bedroom, so it was a slightly different layout than yours, but it was still a pretty roomy little apartment. It didn't feel like a hovel, you know. It felt felt nice. Nice, decent sized kitchen and cute bathroom. And it had, you know, it's typical, those cute tub and shower combos and some, you know, vintage tile. And that's the thing that I definitely really enjoyed about all the different places I lived in Sacramento. I mean, some locations better than others, but like those little vintage charm of the, of the bathrooms and the kitchens and stuff. But yeah, I think mine was around 425 or something like that. And do you know the year? Because I do. I remember the year. No, go tell me. It was what 2001. Was oh my God. And the reason <laughs> I know that is because we were living there when 9-11 happened. You, oh my God, you're so right. And and so I, I, that means that, you know, I was living there before that. How far before that, I'm not sure. But definitely, you know, 2001, because that, that was in September, obviously. So I remember that. Because I I remember that very vividly. It was also at a time where I was watching, I would go to Tower Video on Broadway and I would always rent all these like silent movies. And I was watching a ton of like VHS silent movies. There were multiple cassettes and sitting there. But yeah, no, I, I remember that very vividly. And yeah, so that was, that's how it all started. So, oh, and by the way, we would, I don't know if you remember this, but we would always go on little like jog walks around McKinley Park. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Those jogging shoes at the time were brand new for me. I think those were my first pair of jogging shoes. I only got rid of those about I think 3 or 4 years ago. That's how oh how God. long they lasted slash how how much I used them. Yeah. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, it's funny. I have specific memories um about that apartment and with you and even certain ones, I think maybe only ever happened once or twice. But I remember, you know, we went grocery shopping once and got everything to make pancakes or waffles or something and then came back to your apartment and, you know, made up a bunch of tasty waffles and, and then probably went out on our little our little jog jaunt. <laughs> so, so this morning, my friend comes over. Uh, she's moving here. She's a costumer and she's transitioning to L.A. And uh, she came over for breakfast and I made pancakes. <laughs> oh, so awesome. It's That's still awesome. around. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I remember you did a movie night at least once to at that apartment complex because I remember watching like Oh, cartoons in or something back. in the back. Yeah. Oh, they have a good. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that, but that's right. Yeah. And I remember having my band play there back there once too. So it was like the parking area, and so we just invaded that whole space and you know had a party and barbecue and and I remember somebody brought popsicles. They were just like, "Here's popsicles. Everybody eat them right now," you know, because there wasn't like a freezer available or anything. Yeah, you know, Sacramento was great. There, there, it's it was a great place to like to grow up and to figure things out and to incubate and you could do you know whatever you wanted. You know, it was really very free. It was very it was like that for a long time and until you know I, I left in two thousand and nine. 
but there was this really magical time. It was very inexpensive to live there. I mean, I remember right before the recession, all kinds of people were opening up shops, you know, like young people opening up all kinds of shops. It was like the mm-hmm. rise of of hipsterdom uh, in in relationship to like buying used clothing, you know, and then like turning it into something, you know, turning it into fashion, right. like redoing it into something. I forget what they, they used to have a term for that. Upcycling. That or... sounds fancy. I'm not sure, but I... <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very creative time. You know, I made a lot of film. I made like a lot of films. I had a sort of a studio gallery for a while and bands would play and it was a really great moment. I'm very thankful for it. You know, I feel like Greta Gerwig with Ladybird really captured um, Sacramento and its energy and its sort of city psychology quite well. Yeah, I thought she did as well. And it definitely brought that movie brought back a lot of memories about because when you are paying that much, you know, rent. And I, I do remember another place I rented for three twenty five, and three of us lived there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was um, I had lived there earlier on in the, I guess it was the early nineties with my boyfriend uh, Vince De Fiore, who later on went on to be in Cake. And then he and I broke up. I moved out of town. And then when I moved back into town, he was looking for a roommate. And it ended up that we took this two-bedroom apartment complex or apartment that was in this space above somebody else's little apartment. And we said, well, if we take this front room and turn it into a third bedroom, then we can fit this other friend of ours in. And it had two bathrooms. And so the three of us were we're splitting three twenty-five, you know, for for this place. <laughs> it's amazing. I, that was the magic of it back then, too. You know, when you're young, you don't care. It's all about like money and like, and then at the same time, it's fun to hang out with other people. Yeah, we had cats. I mean, we had a couple of kitties. We, I had my own bathroom in that bedroom, so like the guys could have their yeah, that's a luxury. their dude bathroom, and I could have my you know girly own bathroom. And yeah, I was in a band. I was working at a I think I was working at the muffin bakery at the time, so I was having weird hours and then going and recording late at night at the Crest Theater. And I don't know, just yeah, it was there's something very freeing about not worrying. I mean, there's a sense of having not all the money that you want, but rent isn't usually the biggest worry, you know? Yeah. When the cost of living is so low, you know, you don't, and you're not struggling per se to, to make rent, you know, or to put food on your table or anything, you know, you can be very creative and, and do kind of whatever you want. I mean, it's really about learning. I mean, you know, discovering, you're discovering yourself and what it's about. And it's in a place where you can do that. Um, and I think that to me was the the magic of growing up there at that time. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I think something to take into consideration too, like the kind of apartments and the kind of houses we used to live in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of them are older buildings, a lot of Victorians. I lived in a Victorian for a while or at least a, a really older building. So, you'd have these very spacious places where you could create lots of bedrooms because it used to be like a den or a separate dining room and there's all these doors. And, exactly. And so, you could literally just pile in a ton of people and everyone would have their room and uh, you'd still have space. And so, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's funny, you know, now that you say that, I remember when I first moved in with with Vince and we got that apartment initially as a couple, I was moving out of living at a house that over time we had occupied with, I think, at certain points, there were as little as six of us, but as many as, you know, eight or 10 of us living in that place. Mm -hmm. And I had had, you know, first dibs because I was the person who'd put my name on the on the rental agreement. So I had, a, I had my own bedroom. <laughs> there were people definitely sleeping in the living room. We had a whole basement that two people had moved into. And yeah, it had, again, two bathrooms. I think two bathrooms makes a big deal when you're trying to fit a lot of people in there. And that was um, across the street from uh, Dorothea Puente before she had oh, been arrested. Yeah, so. yeah. I remember all of that. Oh, I remember this story now. I remember us talking about this. Yeah, yeah. Sacramento. So yeah, so we were talking a little bit uh, before you know, we started recording. I was asking you, you know, how should I introduce you? You know, what it is that you do, and we kind of laughed a little bit about that because, I, you know, I said I wanted to start this podcast to really talk about what it's like to be a multi-creative and of what I call I consider multi-creatives vibrant visionaries is the name that I the moniker that I decided to use because I feel like well first it sounds really nice and positive you know it does I was thinking I'm like I'm like yeah I want to be one of those that sounds awesome my ego really <laughs> wants to be one of those exactly so you know there is a little bit of that put in there but I, I and I love alliterations and I thought it would you know make a nice logo and everything but but I also feel like because I think we can easily stigmatize ourselves into thinking like, well, what am I? I do a little bit of this. I do a little bit of that. Or on a different day, you might ask me and it'll be a different answer. So yeah. So today, what are some of the things you identify as I know I am this and this and this? Well, you know, look, I, I think for a long time, it's been pretty simple. And that is it. I'm a filmmaker. And, and then I would say... Let's see how long ago. I mean, around the time just before I moved to LA. So, so just to back up for real quick, I moved out of Sacramento in 2009 in May. And I moved to San Francisco to basically go back to school, which a lot of people did during the recession. So, this is the height of the recession. Um, I looked around and I was like, I'm not uh, in 2008, I just turned 30. I'm not doing the things I set out in life to do. I had a business. Um, I had made a few f short films. I had a relationship and I had been photographing uh, in kind of these really cool Sacramento gay bars and meeting all kinds of people. So in, in 2008, I was 30 and I was in a relationship that I wasn't happy with. Uh, it had been like, you know, just over three years. There was a lot kind of going on, but I looked around, I'm like, you know, I'm not doing what I wanted to do, which is I wanted to be a filmmaker, you know, since a young age, I'm writing scripts at nine. And I'm, I felt like I've got distracted or off track. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine, after I broke up with my boyfriend at the time, a friend of mine's like, you need to go to Burning Man with me. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I was really scared. This is so funny. I was really scared to go, but a few people pushed me to go. So I did, I went and it was a very life-changing event for me, uh, mainly in that I really learned the way that people could express themselves and connect with each other in a very personal and emotional way, which was new for me. 
And so it really opened me up when I came back. I just looked around. I was like, I have to make changes. I have to do something. So within a week, I decided to give 30 days notice on my apartment. I bought tickets to backpack in Europe the beginning of the following year. I also decided to apply to San Francisco State to go back to school to pursue a degree in film. I had always been like, oh, artists, you don't go to art school or you don't go to school for art. You just do it. You know, so I made all these changes and within a month kind of had enacted a lot of this. Mm. So following my trip to Europe where I went solo for six weeks, which was really amazing, staying on people's couches and, and meeting all kinds of people there, I moved to San Francisco. I went to school there. And at the time, I hadn't made a short film in about six years. I met this 20-year-old who was really precocious and really an amazing guy, Patrick. And he pushed me to make a short to the point where he would sit on me and force me to kind of write and come up with these ideas. And I'd bounce off him and do that. But he really forced me to write. And he produced it. That film started to go into festivals while I was in college. And then during that same time, I made one more short film. And so both those films were going into festivals. I had never submitted my work to festivals before. And they were being well-received. And in turn, I met a director who was making his first feature and asked me to come on to consult with him. I did that. And that turned into me becoming the editor and kind of taking over the editing on that. And that's kind of how all of a sudden my direction shifted and I became a film editor. The next thing I know, I'm being approached to do a documentary and, you know, one thing leads to another. And so, the last several years, I moved to LA in 2012, January. And the next few years, I worked professionally as an editor making a living. But knowing all the time that editing is not what I want to do as a career, but really, you know, filmmaking is what I want to do, making, directing films. But I felt by editing, I would learn a lot about everything from structure and story and also to see where directors succeeded in making really great choices, but also in learning where problems arose, where challenges, where things that you don't see. Because in the edit room, you really do see all of that. And so it was a really great learning space. When I think about that too, I would think that When you're, since you're getting the unedited, obviously, versions of those films, you also get to see how much is there before it's edited. How many hours, I would imagine that would be also something useful if you're going in to make a film to know, oh, this is kind of the norm or this is... Yes. Well, also, but one thing to consider, I was working on a lot of like first-time filmmakers projects or really early. A lot of the work I've done is mostly with first-time filmmakers. So, you're right in one degree, but actually what you also pick up is you learn a lot of what they didn't get. And it's in the same way that, you know, we often hold up People like the masters are very successful oftentimes. And success can be more than money um, for sure. And But a lot of times the people that we hold up are successful both critically and, and sort of commercially. Oftentimes these days, they're still alive. They used to not be. So right. <laughs> the, the commercial critical is kind of... But, but you know, a lot of them were. Where, where was I going with this? Why did I say that? Oh, right. So oftentimes, you know, we hold up these sort of masters as these examples of like what to be and what success is and, and look at their paths. How do they get there? And those are the paths that we should try and follow. But I find oftentimes you learn far more from people's mistakes and failures. To give mm-hmm. you a quick instance, right before I jumped out on my own in 2004 to go into business, 
I was working at a business and I had had experience in that field and I actually started a new division for that company. But I watched that business who had an enormously loyal customer base and a really loyal employee base. And I watched what happened when the owner couldn't let the business be more than himself. So he could never Mm -hmm. allow the customers and the employees to be the business. And he had to control microly everything. Well, what happened over time, very quickly, you know, I left and a friend of mine who ran another part of the business, we both left to start a business. And then slowly people started to shift and other people started to leave and then customers started to go. And now because of both technology and other things, but that company is sort of a shell of what it was. And at its height, it was a really amazing community, actually. All kinds of events from bands and art shows and everything was going on, movie nights. All these things were happening. And it taught me a lot about how to be successful, you have to really be able to let go and you have to allow whatever that thing is that you're doing, whether it's a business, whether it's making a film, a piece of art, whatever it happens to be, there is a time where you have to allow it to be more than just you. You're giving it over to those to those other people, whether it's the viewers, you know, or your audience, or it's your customers, or it's the people that are helping you make it. It starts to become a collaboration because I, f- I feel like there's something out there that I think of it as like holding lightly, like when you're meditating and you're being mindful, you're holding uh, your moment very lightly. So you're letting things drift through, mm. you know, ideas, but you don't want to be too attached to those. You just want to let them flow by. But there's part of you that also, or maybe a message you've gotten from from inside or from outside that's saying, you know, follow your vision, yeah. right? So, so how do you follow your vision? How do you how do you follow your vision? And yet also, once you start to put your vision out there, see how it may be evolving in a way that you never expected that could be something quite beautiful and different. And that is a collaboration with the customers, with your certainly your employees. I mean, I've definitely worked places where I've thought the initial vision of this person was great, but it is starting to shift. And, uh, you know, similarly, they're, it's going to die because they're not seeing the opportunities, the other, they're, they're so attached to the outcome yes. that they thought was the true outcome. Actually, when I moved to the Bay Area, and I, and I found myself working at a coffee house again, which the short tie into that is that she had a vision of serving coffee, tea, organic, you know, really great high quality stuff. And uh, a few, you know, pastries, maybe from a local bakery, but people started to want to come for for the food. And, and I kind of pushed some of the food ideas. And then she started to latch on to the food ideas. And, and then she got so passionate about serving the community really delicious, wholesome food that now she's opened a, a restaurant. And that restaurant has been open for a, a year and has been you know, very successful over in Oakland. So it's she started in Alameda with this one idea, and then the community sort of rallied around her and, and gave her some other ideas. And she did go with that, you know. Well, you know, what to me, what you're describing, and it's something that I talk a lot about, and it's something I've had to learn. It's been a focus, a lot of focus of, of my life, which is listening, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, what you're talking about is she listened to her customers she listened to her employees. She listened. And 
listening is, in my opinion, the most important element of the human experience. And I'll give you an example because I, I would think, you know, vibrant visionaries and about art and the multi hyphenate. And I mean, we, well, I'm just going to riff for a minute here and, and, and Go you can do it. it as you please. But I think, you know, there's a lot of challenges here. I mean, I identify myself in a few different ways. I can look at what the common themes are in my life, and that is film and photography. And both come from a place of curiosity. They both come from a place where I want to learn something. I want to learn about the person who I'm interacting with, right? So, for example, when I'm photographing, I photo photograph a lot in, in gay bars and queer spaces, especially nightlife. Now, that connects to me because it started out as my process to go through to uncover what it meant to be a gay man, what it meant to be in a gay community. Um, so it was it was tied to my understanding, trying to understand my identity in a way that felt both probably safe and creative and, and just what I connected to. And so photography became that. And it was this avenue that I could go out and sort of escape from other parts of my life and and go out and do that. But the people that I would approach you know, at the time, there was a lot of transgender women in it, going to the mercantile in Sacramento. And I never knew transgender women. I never knew transgender people. You know, at the time, the language was also different. Mm -hmm. And so, I would go up and I would start talking to people there and I would ask them, hi, who are you? What's your name? Now, uh, they weren't used to this. A lot of the people I meet were not used to someone just striking up a conversation with them. I think that a lot of times... They were used to people wanting something from them, oftentimes, you know, sex. But there was this really interesting community that was going on at the time. And I was really curious to learn, who are you? What are you about? What's life? And so, it taught me a lot. And in turn, only when it felt right, after talking a little bit, I would ask, could I take your portrait? Now, going forward, all the film projects I've worked on as an editor, the way I choose the work I do, I want something that is going out there and that is sort of what is empowering people, what is adding something to a conversation, all in sort of a creative way. And to me, everybody that I work with, like the key is I have to listen. As an editor, I have to know, and one of the first things I do when I'm interviewing, I ask a lot of questions. I want to know what the director's expectations are. I want to know what they want out of this, what they're looking for. I want to know what the producers want, what the actors want. I want to know, I try to understand as much as I can about where everyone's coming from. You understand a lot more of like why things were done the way they were done and also what people's expectations are when they see this. So I can use that when I'm editing, for instance, and let's say the scene isn't what the scene that they have in mind or what they expected it to be didn't come out that way. And instead, I have it kind of a different way. I have to justify why this way is better than that way. So, for me, it's also been a lot of like understanding how to communicate. And if I know where they're coming from, so if I know, for instance, this director wants to go off and direct television, I know that this producer actually wants to be a writer. I know that this actor wants to go to be in television. I know that this producer wants to go on and do movies. These things let me know. And so I can be like, look, you know, you want to be a writer. Editing this scene, keeping this scene this way, or, you know, making the scene this way will, for instance, 
really show the writing in a strong and powerful way. Everyone's performance will be more strong and on point. And yes, maybe that piece of information or that thing you felt was important is not there. But actually, in the scheme of things, it's not as important as you think. And more so, it actually takes the strength away from everything else that's already so strong here. And so, what I'm kind of doing in a roundabout way of saying all this is you have to really be attuned and listening to those that are around you. As an instance, you know, with customers or with clients, like uh, a great example is this. I've been making a documentary for a couple of years now. We started live streaming our editing sessions on Facebook. Now, nobody I know is doing this. And I wanted to do it as a way to connect to the audience, to find the audience, connect to the audience, for them to feel that they're part of the process because they are. So, in turn, started doing this and people started writing like what they thought, what their thoughts are, what they felt was missing or what they thought, you know, think it should say or do here or there. Mm -hmm. Now, some people will, who are creative will be, oh my, like, oh no, wow, I cannot handle that. People watching me, giving feedback, you know, to a degree, I can totally understand that. I like to open myself up, but I also feel comfortable that I know how to balance or I can balance between what I think is important, but also keeping open and knowing that I'm making something for someone else. This is to communicate an idea. Is that communication occurring? Is there something I've missed out on? And so what's great is I'm getting this direct feedback and these people are now part of the process. So they're taking a sense of ownership and interest in it. At the same time, I'm getting information that's either validating what I've been working on, or perhaps there's another idea that I've missed and I can incorporate. Or I can also get a lot of mixed signals, which means that this is going to do things for different people and there's probably no right or wrong just to kind of keep that in mind and keep moving and seeing what happens. Does that all make sense? All of that makes so much sense. I, I think you started all of that with using the word curiosity mm -hmm. and listening and how important listening is. And when I think about curiosity and listening makes me think about something I'm really passionate about, which is what I call compassionate communication. And, and that's a huge part of compassionate communication is being able to be still enough and out of your head enough, your own head enough to be able to listen and truly hear what it is the other person says. But if you're not quite understanding, being able to articulate and ask more questions so that you really clarify that you understand, and then you quite eloquently then talked about how beneficial that is to you as an editor, you get to bring in your own intuition and your skill and use what you've learned and heard from these different directors that you've worked with, what their goals are. So you're, you're helping them achieve what it is that they want to achieve because you started by truly understanding what it was that they wanted. And that can be really useful with the examples you gave that overarching, say, value that they're trying to get out of it. Like I frame a lot of things in like what our values are. Mm -hmm. If their value or their goal is to, you know, become somebody that's working in television or, or you know, the different examples you gave, you're saying, I'm aligning with that value by doing this. This is why I made this decision because of what you said. And then they can articulate back to you, oh, wow, thanks, I kind of forgot, or I get sidetracked easily, or, oh, my values have changed, actually. I'm not, that's no longer as important to me. But you starting by listening to them makes you a great asset. And part of their collaborative process, they get to start trusting you more and more as they go. And then 
I think you talking about coming in with curiosity to someplace like the mercantile and asking questions that are very open-ended, you know, in your head, you may know, you know, five steps from now, I'm hoping to take this person's portrait. But let's start with this. Who are you? And saying that in an open and you know, friendly way, you know, somebody might be closed off and might not want to have anything to do with you. But you're also giving them an opportunity to share how they see themselves in the world and not you placing a, I can't tell if they're a trans person or how they like to be, um, you know, we can get really uptight or, or feel confused when we're not sure who people are, how they identify. And it can be quite yeah. easy if you do just say, so who are you? You know. <laughs> so I love I love that idea. Um, but yeah, all all of it comes down to this this listening part, which is you know why I love podcasting. I want to hear people's stories, and sure, I'm going to come in and and bring in my point of view or my response to those stories. But I'm really here to to learn from you. Yeah, I mean, I think life, at least my sort of philosophy on life, is life is really a learning experience. And that sounds so cliched in a sense, but I really truly mean like life is about learning and and discovery and it is full of anxiety. Most everybody I know who is creative has anxiety. And uh, I would say that I think that most people actually have anxiety. I think most people, you know, how it expresses within themselves, that's different for sure. I think that being creative and trying to live a creative life um, for whatever that means, and that's that's a whole whole thing, really can really what it means about is living in an unknown space, okay? And in turn, that unknown space is really can really trigger anxiety. And to me, it's about living within anxiety. So I think like the more that you live in a creative space in life, the more that you have to come to terms and really think about and process your anxiety. Now, I know people who run a very large spectrum from this and I've experienced it. I have my own versions of this, but I've also experienced other people's versions. And so, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do, I think, and again, this all is when I say what we're trying to do, it's like what I'm sure, trying to sure. do. <laughs> um, but is really try to figure out like how do I put that anxiety away or how do I utilize that anxiety in a way that's productive and creative? Um, because oftentimes that same anxiety that we're trying to get rid of or we think is bad or a weakness is actually what fuels or or is connected to the fueling of the creative expression. So whether that, you know, whether that comes out through painting or whether that comes out through writing or podcasting, or in my opinion, even business is this way. Um, entrepreneurship, you know, I think like the learning experience, like life, you know, whether we use these different tools, like listening is one tool that we use, are really about finding out how we can live a life where the anxiety doesn't overpower our ability to succeed as a creative person in whatever we decide at that point in time is our version of expressing that creative life. Does that make sense? It's a very like kind of, you know, balancing between up here and down here. Well, I think that's what it is, though. I think it is the balancing of because 
people are going to hear me t- use the word compassion a lot because I've, that's something that I s- have been studying and then playing around with and practicing. I mean, the shorthand version of what compassion is, is, is just is paying attention to and understanding that there's suffering going on. So, so when it comes to anxiety, anxiety can oftentimes feel like suffering. And it's not about being balanced, you know, in life, like this crazy, you know, life, I want to feel a sense of balance and everything. Yeah, I don't believe you're ever going to find, I mean, you know, not, not to sidetrack you for one second, but, but I have a lot of friends and we talk a lot. It's also, I live in LA this whole life, spiritual work, balancey thing. I have friends who are very successful business people who, you know, spend a lot of time trying to figure this out. His and their entire life is trying to figure that out. And I think one thing you learn is, and whether whatever your religious spiritual connections are, I think what you learn is that it's process, meaning you never obtain it. When you obtain it, you're dead right? In my opinion. I mean, you could never fully obtain this perfect balance. That's the whole point. The point is to like continue to work towards it's a process. Yeah. I love those words, process of discovery. I also think of a word that that I heard a lot and now feel like I understand a little more is, is maybe achieving some resilience. When I think of resilience, I think, okay, I still may feel um, anxious, or I still may go off the deep end at a certain point, but I have learned tools or ways to check in with myself so that I am not there as long yes. as I used to be. So I'm not in a state of paralysis or depression for as long as I was before. It is about going through the emotions. Part of working for yourself even with scheduling and such, is that there is a lot more of that that you're aware of, that combinations of imposter syndrome or feeling guilty because you have time to think and process that other people don't. You need to get comfortable with the discomfort, the unknowing, the emotional responses that you're not quite sure what they're going to be until they're sometimes just upon you or waving, <laughs> cresting and waving over Absolutely. you. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I think of it more as resilience versus yeah. resilience and knowing some of the process is going to be discomfort and pain. And, and yeah, sometimes you can use that and hopefully you can use that to propel you forward and accomplish many things. And then other times you want to find those restful times that can help you uh, move forward in your business goals and all those kind of practical things. Yeah, you know, I would I would say, you know, connected to what you're saying about that. It's also like you have to give yourself permission mm-hmm. to feel mm-hmm. depressed, to feel anxious. You have to, in in the sense of like, you know, it's okay because the only way that you're going to get through it is by re, is by admitting it to yourself and and allowing yourself to go through it. I mean, I'll tell you, like, I've been going through my own version for a little while now. For me, it's interesting. Right before every year happens, and I've noticed this over the last few years, something happens. I think about the year coming, you know, there's this time of year in December, November, December, when all of a sudden sort of the year in review things start popping up everywhere. Right. Right. And I start thinking about what next year is going to like, what my year had been like, what my next year is going to be like. And I sort of have this prediction of what every year is going to be. So for instance, going in one year, um, one year I had edited this web series 
called Her Story, which surprisingly got a nomination for an Emmy. It was the first year that they had done Emmys for digital series. That's what web series are called. And so we were very excited to to go. I mean, I you know, this was it was very magical. By the way, just so you know, you have to pay to go. <laughs> it's very expensive overall. It's like, you know, I was like, I don't have a suit. I need a suit, you know. So anyways, I knew that this year was going to be a very good year because mm-hmm. of all these things that were happening. It was going to be a very high year, you know, like I was going to feel very high. Things were going to happen. And then coming out of that, I felt like, oh, things will be a little easier now that this this thing's gotten an Emmy, work will be a little easier. But time goes by, you know, and as it's winding down, I'm like, oh, it's it's not going to be quite that. I'm going to need to get back into the hustle and like figure things out. And so that that next year, which I believe was 2016, I was at a point where, you know, I was looking for something to edit something more. What I mean by more is like I'd done a lot of sort of uh, freshman projects with freshman directors. And I was like ready for something a little more meaty. And, you know, I thought, oh, this will be easier. But it wasn't kind of happening. At the same time, I was making a film and I needed something. And so in the end, you know, it was going through and work wasn't coming and I was getting really anxious. It had been a couple of months or so. And I was offered a position to come in as an associate editor in a documentary. Now, this was this this director's fifth movie, maybe. Now, I wasn't going to be editor and I was upset about that. I was like, I should be the editor. But the deal that I ended up with, you know, I turned it down about three or four times. But the deal in the end was that I would make as much as I did editing at the time and that I'd be working under this really cool editor And to be honest with you, it wasn't creative. Like it wasn't a creative job. It was a really technical job. Now I'm really good at the technical, but but the money was going to be very consistent Mm. and and very well for like almost the rest, like nine months. So I made a deal with myself. I said, you know what? Look, you can take this. You're going to take this, but you have to make this other movie. You have to make your own work. You have to do this because if you don't, you're never going to get it done. So I used it as an opportunity because what it didn't do is it didn't take up a lot of my creative energy. When I worked on editing other people, I had to give everything of myself over to it. This I didn't. Right. And what it left is it left the room for my creative self to work on my own project. Now, was I able to devote 100% of the time to it? No. But I was having a consistent income that wasn't requiring a lot of my creative energy. and. I felt very comfortable. It was very good, actually. I have this consistent income. Things are okay. I'm not stressing out. I can work on this. And I also didn't need the film that I was making to have an immediate income, like raise money for it and have this money and really feel like it needed to support me. And I came out of that year and I took off. I took off for four weeks traveling in Southeast Asia. I now have a rule. I try to spend one month a year traveling. And usually January is the year because it's the slowest. But I went and I really thought about things and I came back and I devoted almost pretty much full time for the next year to the documentary that I was making. But I still needed to make some money. And what I did is I said, you know what? I don't want to edit other people's movies anymore. I don't want to edit other people's stuff because of the requirement of how much creative energy I have to spend in it that leaves me depleted for my own work. So I transitioned into doing corporate corporate video work. Something that before I'd be like, oh, no, that's awful. Mm -hmm. Never do that. But the rate of pay was much higher actually than independent film. 
especially if you can make it consistent. And the consistent part is more difficult because especially what I was doing was I knew I was transitioning. It was a year of transition in a sense where I was transitioning into another field of which I had no network for. So, I had to build a new network. It's like starting a new business in a way. But meanwhile, I was able to put so much energy and move the movie forward in a really great way. Now, coming near the end of last year, 2017, the movie was not where I thought it would be. Mm. Movies take a lot of time. They generally take five years and they can take more or less, but roughly they usually take about five years. And you have to allow it to take as long as it takes. You need to keep moving forward with it, but you need to not rush and you need to listen to it and you need to be, you know, willing to change and to, you know, to be fluid about it. So anyways, I came out that year and I was like, wow. So I went on another trip as I did. I had literally this time though, had no money, no work, no money, no prospective money coming in, but I was able to get a ticket for $150 because I had points you know? And I just went. And once I'm over in Southeast Asia, it's very inexpensive to be there. Right. I went because I felt like, well, hell, I don't have any money. It's not going to cost me really anything. And I'm not going to make money while I'm here. So, I might as well just go. But I realized that the next year, this year, was going to be a year of building. That's what I called it. And it was, I'm going to be building a lot of new things. So, here I am. I'm days away from my 40th birthday. I look back, it's like, am I where I thought I would be when I had this same discussion at 30? And the answer is no, I'm not. But the difference is, is that I understand the process more. And my expectations and what I want out of life has changed somewhat. And so now I stand on the verge, you know, I've, I'm still working on these films. It's going to take a while. I need to make money. I don't want to edit other people's movies anymore. I have my photography, which I keep mostly for myself, although I've just recently launched a wedding photography business because it's a space where I can express myself and connect with people and do it in a unique way that I can also generate an income from. But that takes a while. So, in the meantime, what I decided is, you know what? I saw a position at a company, sort of a startup media company, a new content company that's very exciting. And I noticed they had a creative producer position open in LA. And my friend had recently gotten a job in San Francisco doing this. And I was like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So, I reached out to him and he immediately connected me with the recruiter. The next day, I had a call. It went very, very well. Um, They were like, but you have a lot of post-production background, not a lot of producing background. I said, I know, but that's a big asset, you know, and also having made films and making films and doing these docs, you know, I have to create pitch decks. I have to um, do a lot of research. You know, there's a lot of, I have to negotiate contracts. I do all of these things, you know, I've done business, all this. So, they gave me a project to do. I did that project. Turned out they loved the project and I'm through the hurdles. I have one last hurdle. It keeps getting pushed back. The last interview is supposed to be Thursday. Now it's Friday. (laughs) But, you know, it's the first time I was like, wow, there is the chance of me being able to do something else and go in a new way. And normally I would never do this because to me, it's like, oh no, it's a corporate job. Oh, is this failing? I'm not, you know, and I've had a lot of talks with friends and other people. And as a side note, one of the things that we that I wanted to say is your support network is so critical. I have friends who are very wealthy. I have friends who are very wealthy in life experience, you know, amazing artists, amazing business people, um, and just regular old people that, you know, we just talk about silly things and play Uno together. 
But it's really important because it provides perspective and a support in those times where things you don't know, like where I'm at, what I'm doing, what do I do? And I had some conversations and people like, you're framing this wrong. Yes, you could look at it this way. But really, if it gives you a emotional security for a little bit, that's fine. You don't have to do it forever, which is true. You don't. But more so, it's going to introduce you to a whole next level of networks and contacts. Right. These people that are in Hollywood, these people that are in making things on a scale that I've never been able to work on before because of sort of the freshman work. But all that freshman, all that work that I did, I would never be able to go after this job if it wasn't for all of that other work that I had done. Now, where will I be a year from now? I don't know. I'm still working on my films. I still love my photography. I've been encouraged to have a show. You know, we'll, we'll see. But I think instead of everything having to be a very concrete product, a very specific, you must have a show, you must make a book, this movie must come out on this date, this thing must do that. The minute you can sort of be, maybe it's not so much about these things, these sort of product-based goals, but maybe it's about learning-based goals. Maybe it's about what I learn and how I get there and what I do with it and checking in to see, am I happy about that? And in turn, the more that I kind of take that approach, right? I will reach those same goals. I just may not reach them on March the 24th. There's so much written about you know how to reach your goals. Right. And it's usually productivity hacks. Yeah. Yeah. There's no <laughs> hacks in life, by That's the way. That's the thing. I think what you've, you know, we've spent just about an, oh my gosh. Yeah. Just about an hour talking. And you've covered a lot of wonderful areas about this creative process. And that, yeah, I think those milestones. Somebody else might see you and say, oh, so Brian, I, I ran into him the other day. He's got this corporate job, right? Like there might be somebody judging that. But if if you're not judging that and you're seeing what the opportunities are, what I'm hearing consistently from you are making decisions that aren't from fear and making decisions that are, have opportunities in them and that you're also saying, oh, wow, there's all these different skills I've learned because of these different jobs I've had and they're going to you know, this editing job, like you so eloquently laid out for us was an opportunity for you to edit for somebody else, but also kind of have a timeline for an amount of time, you'd also be able to work on your own project and not be thinking this other project has to be the moneymaker. It's a combination of giving yourself parameters, but also being flexible with the process and, and not knowing how long that process is going to take. I mean, that's how we make the best art. Yeah. And I mean, I think just sort of to bring this to a boiling point or, you know, there's so much pressure to tie what we do creatively into a financial success or into allowing us to make a living, right? This way that we connect small business or being an entrepreneur into connecting that with our creative work. And look, it can totally be done. There's nothing wrong with it. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with it not being that. And I think we place a lot of expectations on ourselves. I know I have that in order to be a successful person creatively, I need to also be able to derive an income from that that supports me. That way I'm living as an artist. I am an artist or I am a filmmaker. I'm. It's very tough. I think. I think that it's not to say that it can't be done. It totally can. People are all over the spectrum. And 
I think that what's more important is to understand that just as much as anything else is, this is all a process. It's all a learning experience. And how long that process takes to get to sort of a tangible product on the other end that you feel meets the expectations that you set up, how long that will take, no one can tell you. You don't even quite know. And I think it's about giving yourself this permission of flexibility. You still keep working on it, but you have to be flexible. It's a very fine balance because there's other times where you can just like, oh, it doesn't matter then in that case, or I'll just not do this. Or The only way you'll know is by doing it and having those experiences where you burn out, where you succeed, where you fail, where you, know, you have to have all of that. Right. And that's really what it is. You just keep going and you figure it out and you have people around you who really support and care about you, even if it's only one person (laughs) and they're on the internet somewhere. You have to find something out there. You know, I was really lucky. Mine were mostly teachers. I would have a teacher here, a teacher there that really saw something that really supported me and that really made a huge difference. And I think we try to find those things. It's yeah, you you have to listen to yourself and give yourself permission to not be perfect and to screw up and to have moments where life is going to be really high and really awesome and moments where it's going to be so low and you have no idea where where the rent's going to come from. But you just keep doing it. You'll figure it out. You'll figure your version of it out. Everything you're saying is so important. You know, you, you talked about your community, your supporters. Uh, there was a certain point in my life where I finally was in a position where I said, oh, now I can lead a band and that will be my occupation. I will be a band leader. I'll get together some great musicians here in the Bay Area. You know, we'll do weddings, we'll do corporate, we'll do clubs, all these different things. You know, I know the music that I want to play. I'm not a writer, but I, I like to cover kind of more obscure rhythm and blues and soul and stuff that people really like. Oldies and jazz. Oh, the kind of stuff people love, you know, at weddings that are crowd pleasing music. The long and the short of it is once I started working on it, there were certain elements that were satisfying. But ultimately, I realized, oh, this isn't what I want to do. And that was kind of shocking to me. It was shocking to people around me, you know, and then people identified, oh, you're Heidi, you're the, the singer. So you're not doing that? Then who are you? Yeah, you know? I don't that know how whole... to identify with you. And then there's these little yes. deaths that kind of came around that. Yeah. Uh, and then re- rebuilding through working with yeah mentors and friends and working with a coach, which is what I did for a long time and ultimately how I decided I wanted to be a coach. I couldn't do any of that without my own personal resilience and then also having friends around. And when I didn't have enough of that network around, it was, ooh, dark times. <laughs> I was depressed and lonely and oof, it was rough. Yeah. Well, you know, we isolate ourselves because we feel like we need to solve this stuff ourselves. We're independent. We're this person. We don't want to trouble people. Also, it proves to us that we can do it. But the key is that nobody does anything in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And everyone is supported. Some people are supported through trust funds, and they can go out there and do whatever they like. Some people are supported through a contact you have at a company who can help you get a job or a contact you know at a venue who can help you get secure that gig as a photographer or as a wedding band. I think something that you you touched on and I just want to pick up real quick is this thing where you were like, you know, 
going to be a band leader. Now we're going to get these jobs. We're going to get corporate. We're going to get wedding. It's very easy to play these stories in our head. Okay, I have this idea. Like I'm going to be a photographer. Like I'm a photographer. That's what I do. So I need to make money. So I'm going to do weddings. I'm going to do family portrait. I'm going to do this, do that. Now that's great. We start to imagine it. We see it in our heads, right? We see ourselves like taking pictures or or singing music in front of these people. And like, but what's so interesting is to then take that and to translate that into reality. There's a lot of hard work. You and a lot of other people out there want to be band leaders and want to play this. You and a lot of other people out there want to be a photographer and will do weddings. You know, I've been researching the wedding market. It is so saturated and everything looks the same. How do you do it? You could go, well, I'll differentiate myself. I'll, I'll look different. But it's more than that. You have to do a lot of research and a lot of work. It's a full-time job. It's a job. You look, it's never going to be 100% pleasurable ever. No, nothing you ever do is going to be 100% pleasurable. If it's so unpleasurable or so disillusioning or so taking away from it, that's something to listen to. It's not that you can't be a band leader. It's just that maybe being a band leader and doing weddings and doing it professionally in that way might not be for you. There may be something else. And it's finding what you connect with that you can do in a way that supports yourself, that you can, even through the hard work, you still feel like you're getting something out the other side. Now, whether that's a life coach for artists, creatives, where it's becoming a lot of your life and will become, you holistically live that way, or whether it's that you have a different way that you make money through some other job and you go and you, you and your band practice on the weekends and at night and you play gigs and you have a great time. You know, or you photograph in the bars. I think this has just been a totally fascinating conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, I, I think just there's just certain words I heard over and over again from you. And I love the idea of, you know, finding your community and being flexible and taking these trips. You know, I think taking a trip out of the country, if you can, also just changes your perspective so much. And then getting, you know, wisdom from friends where they're saying, hey, here's a different way you could look at this as an opportunity that starts helping us see, oh, these these different things are opportunities. They're potential opportunities. That's huge when you're making these decisions about what it is you want out of your year. And, and I like the idea of choosing words too, like building, you know, this is going to be a building year, it really helps frame out that year in an exciting way that is kind of open, open to interpretation and open to who knows what, you know? Yeah, I completely, yes, I completely agree. <laughs> and it's just so important. I mean, you know, when we were talking before about, you know, there's so much out there about hacks and like how to do this and how to do that and the easy way. And, you know, oftentimes what they're really doing is trying to have you sort of reframe your mind or, you know, giving you sort of these tools, these little like spend five minutes a day and, you know, or 10 minutes always, you know, writing just whatever comes to mind. These are, these are really good, but you have to zoom out and sort of look at, again, sort of this holistic way of how you look at yourself. And I just think in the end, yeah, there's just this way that you have to give yourself a lot of room to maneuver in life. So much of what we're take in um, from television and the media and everything around us. Like, like, like social media is such a prime way of this. Social media is branding. Like we've all become really good at branding and storytelling. 
right? And short ways. And so it looks like, wow, that person's always traveling. Like people look at me like, oh, you're always traveling. I'm like, well, no, I just spread my images out over the course of several months because that's how I curate my platform. Like that's a form of expression for me is Instagram. And it's a space that I get to do kind of whatever I want and I don't have to worry about it. But, you know, when you hear these stories and I went out and did this and I got that and, you know, it's all very curated and edited and it sounds great. I'm just going to tell you that most of the people that I know, when you actually sit down and talk about the process, about how they got to where they are or what that that thing, how they're like, oh, I'm here or there. It's so unsexy. It's so much more full of yeah. a much longer story that's tied to so many things that have come behind them. You don't get all of that in an image of a tweet or when it's hashtag blessed, you know, which I can't stand. Right, right. It really is. And so, you know, in the same way that when we're young and we grow up in movies and we're like, oh, this is what romance is. This is what relationships are. It's not that way. Life is never that way. And in the moment that we can really admit that or find a place for that where there's a sort of peace with that, then it makes it easier to start doing the more long-term work of getting where you need to be and finding those little moments along the way. It is those little moments on the way, the what I call the little successes. Like as a quick example, making this documentary, I've been working with a friend of mine who's never made a film and he's used to things happening. He's a graphic artist. So he creates something and it's done within hours, days or a week or so. This idea that a film, like he's like, when will the film be done? It needs, we need to be done this year. And I'm like, well, actually we just shot an interview or actually we just booked an interview or we got said no to. No is a success. No is a success in knowing that that's not going to happen. So we're going to find another way. It's having a shoot or having a phone call or making a partnership or those little things, that's the markers of success. Um, and at the end, when you have the movie, I'll just tell you this because I know this, when you have the movie and it's on the screen, that's not the success. That's actually the letdown. Right. Because <laughs> you're, right. you're done. Like it's over with. It's at it. You're like, oh, what am I doing? That You're already, you know, the, the problem is some people are already on to the next thing before they finish the first thing. But fundamentally, by the time the big thing that you thought was the it is out there, they're done. Oh, you're like, whoa, what now? Like, what? whoa, you know? Right. The process is the thing. Process. That to me in the end, life is the process. Life is the journey. As much as I always find these cliches with it, it, they're so true. I know. And I, I, it's the thing I want to share so much when I talk with friends who I see struggling and we all have our moments and it's just like breathe and let it go and always know I'm here for you. Yeah, that's great. And we're all going to make it. We're all going to do it. And I think the more that we do that for each other, you know, we're never going to have this like magical land where everyone gets along and there's no war. But the more that you keep doing this type of thing and be there for people and listen, look at things as a process and a journey. And the more that you have a chance of leaning a little bit into that, getting a little closer to that place and everyone else kind of gets to go along with each other. I like that. Well, let's let's end on that nice little note there. Let's let let that be our button. Um, <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, speaking of social social places, you mentioned Instagram. Um, where is it that you like to point people when it comes to sharing uh, what it is you're doing? I think Instagram is one of my most favorite platforms. 
it's a creative space for me. It's a Brian B. Darling, and that's B-R-Y-A-N, B, Darling. And, um, and that's the letter B. My new wedding site, which I'm actually really excited about, it was really fun to put together, is BrianDarlingWeddings.com. Yeah, we'll call it a day. And thanks again, Brian. And uh, I'll definitely would love to have you back and, and hear how these projects are, are working for you. Awesome. Well, thanks, Heidi. And you know what? I'm just, I'm so excited for you and for the podcast and for what you're doing in life. So um, congratulations. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Vibrant Visionaries with Heidi Bennett. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you would like to keep the conversation going, come check out my Patreon page. It's a sanctuary for fellow multi-creatives to come hang out and share what your projects are. See behind the scenes stuff that I'm sharing related to the process of doing this podcast. And I'll be sharing things that help my clients succeed in their many multi creative endeavors. You can find a link right in our show notes to the Patreon page and also to vibrantvisionaries.com. And you can also find links that were talked about on the podcast itself. All right. Have a great one. Bye.